Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. I'm Astra. I'm Phil. And I'm Honey. And this week, we are talking about conspiracy theories and magical thinking. But before we get into that, let's do our What Happened on This Day It is currently December 20th, 2022. It's still 22, not 23. And on this day in 1879, Thomas Edison first demonstrated his incandescent light at Menlo Park in New Jersey. This was the very first private showing of his life-changing invention, which is really exciting. And I had no idea it was at Christmas time. So it was a fun thing to learn. But yeah, that's that. Let's just start with why we chose to discuss this particular topic. I was particularly keen myself to discuss magical thinking because it's something that I know that I can be prone to um, due to kind of mental health stuff. So it's quite common, but I don't think it's talked about very much. And I thought it'd be nice to sort of deep dive into the mechanisms behind it. I just think it's interesting. A lot of my friends are, when I say into conspiracy theories, they're not believers of conspiracy theories, but they're into just the psychology of it and the community around it. And there's a really, really, really big intersection between conspiracies and the magical and occult community, especially the New Age community. So I think it's interesting to see those intersections. Yeah, that's why I wanted to talk about it, because I think it's I think some of the things that we do in the magical community are very prone to kind of some of the same things that you would see in people who like legitimately believe in conspiracy theories. So that crossover is super fascinating. I think kind of talking about the similarities and the differences between magical thinking and conspiracy theories and believing those is a good topic to cover. Before we get into that, specifically the conspiracy theories, let's talk about magical thinking. So how is this defined? And then how does it differ from what we actually think of as like magic? So magical thinking is essentially the belief that an event is connected to an outcome but there's no plausible kind of causal explanation between those two. So I'll kind of get into some examples to help explain that a bit more. But basically, it's some it's a term that has a few different definitions. So it originated in anthropology, but it's also used in psychology to describe kind of the more symptoms. So, for example, psychologists will often use the term to refer to a connection between an internal phenomenon, so like your thoughts, and an external outcome. So if I think this, then this will happen. Whereas in anthropology, it tends to um, refer to kind of an association between two events. So say I do a prayer or I do a ritual and that has a result. So they're they're subtly different. So let's kind of use an example. If you believe the superstition that breaking a mirror causes bad luck, if you have a bad day, you might blame breaking the mirror earlier. And that, that would be kind of an example of magical thinking. So a lot of normal superstitions are actually magical thinking. But on the more extreme end of the spectrum, you might have someone with something like OCD and they might think a bad thought about someone and they might genuinely believe that something bad is going to happen to that person. So it's not always a clinical symptom, but it kind of depends on the severity. And of course, anthropologically, it, it can refer to things that we might consider like actual magic, like rituals and prayer and other orthopraxies, which are intended to produce a result. I think the term like synchronicity often gets thrown around in kind of with this idea of magical thinking where it's the cause and effect, right? Like I did X, therefore I will see this. But as we'll talk about later, there are some biases that can influence the difference between like 
magical thinking and actual magic too. So so Hanny found a really great study on all of this that kind of explains two different types of looking at this in kind of a psych- psychological manner. So Hanny, if you, I did not read this in depth, so you were the one who's the expert in this regard regarding the paper. So if you want to talk, like talk about that and what you found. First of all, I want to point out that magical thinking does happen in kind of normal, healthy adults. A lot of the time it's thought to be kind of just a mental health thing. But actually, if you look at some examples, the one in four items on the delusion scale, which is used to assess schizotypy, that they are believed by healthy individuals. So everybody kind of engages with this a little bit. It's not just like a mental illness thing, um, but it can be in more extreme cases, a symptom. So it's just an important distinction to bear in mind. But in terms of how it works... One psychological review has postulated this idea of acquiescence for magical thinking in healthy people. So in this model, an individual recognizes that their belief in superstition is irrational, but they engage in it in spite of this. So they have this kind of dual model of thinking where system one refers to a quick, immediate process, and system two is more sort of slower and deliberate and rational. And if you have questions, let me know, because this is a bit of a complicated concept. But basically the idea is that people are more likely to rely on their system one kind of intuitive thinking rather than system two rational consideration when they're under stress or under high cognitive load. So people who are self-described as creative or or who even are in a good mood are more likely to engage in magical thinking because they're relying more on their kind of system one quick intuitive processes. Um, And stress levels are also a risk factor for this. So it's thought that maybe magical thinking can help people to deal with uncertainty and attain personal control when they feel disenfranchised. What the difference between the two is really, system one thoughts tend to be snap judgments. They're often based on things like similarity. And this is actually kind of interesting because you can see parallels there to maybe sympathetic magic. System one also relies quite a lot on strong emotional connections. So imagine somebody has, they think about a negative outcome for somebody based on an action they take. Because of that negativity and that, that feeling of fear, that sort of reinforces the belief. And of course, once a superstition like this develops, it often kind of itself reinforces. So superstitions can kind of develop quite easily. So what would you guys say the difference there is with like magic versus magical thinking? I think we talked a bit about this in our like superstitions episode. And I remember one thing that we kind of came up with was that a lot of times magical thinking can be more personal based So, for example, if I see the color red, then I'm going to die or something like that's very random, I guess. I think they can there can definitely be an intersection. Like I know for me, definitely with OCD, like obeying certain old folk wive tales. But I think with those, one can see kind of a maybe chaos magic paradigm coming in with feeding the superstition and whatnot with the the belief in the superstition. But I think the difference between like magical thinking and just magic in general, I think can be that magical thinking is oftentimes, I guess, divorced from a belief set. Interestingly, what's funny about magical thinking, and I think what makes it hard to distinguish from magic sometimes, especially if you think that magic is more internal, is that correspondences, for example. Now, Agrippa says, of course, in his three books of occult philosophy, it says that certain like things on the on material realm basically on earth they all have like occult virtues that are assigned to them right now i think sometimes this idea of magical thinking can be prevalent if we consider this idea of correspondence to be more of an internal thing instead of external like with agrippa he is very literally saying this plant has x occult virtue whether or not you believe it right that's very external versus a lot of times the fellow thing, especially with the 
personal aspect of this. Like if you believe and have a personal correspondence that like this thing is related to this particular outcome or some kind of correspondence, you internally begin to actually believe that. It's something that is sort of a superstition, but then over time, especially if you like include it in your workings, that could become like a very solidified belief. I think this is really apparent in things like color, like color correspondences, right? Red is typically associated with anger or intense passion. Sometimes Jupiter being green is associated with money. Now like that, those correspondences to me don't make sense. So you tell me green and I'm thinking Venusian because within the realm of ceremonial magic, Green is associated with with, uh, Venus. So like there, we have the same correspondence, but our magical thinking differs based on what we believe it corresponds to. I think that's kind of where it can get hard to separate the two. But I think the big difference that Phil touched on is like magical thinking seems to be a lot more personalized, whereas actual magic is a bit more external to the individual, depending on your paradigm. That's not always true for everybody. What's also interesting is that system one, when you're talking about it, it kind of reminded me of this idea of of like the um, intuition, right? Listen to your intuition um, when something happens. And it's almost kind of like you said, intuition is like a gut feeling, right? But your gut feelings are informed by superstition and also prior experiences. And so that's also something where I think we have to be careful with magical thinking of, is this my intuition fed by superstition or is actually a kind of like magical thing. I think they're tied in very closely. The distinction between the two is I think hard to define. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really, really good point actually. It's, it's, it's very much the intuition um, kind of analogy is really good. I think, because I think a lot of kind of magic, magic, like ritual magic, people are basing that on kind of a pre-existing system mm-hmm. and they, they have thought about it. You know, it's not a, a snap judgment whereas somebody uh, who is reacting on intuition or gut feeling they're they're doing that because of a you know that system one that kind of immediate association and engagement um so they're not completely separate but they're a bit different i mean i think that's probably why you know we see a ton of uh conspiracies rife within the the greater occult community i think sometimes we can be a bit isolated in certain discords where a lot of those beliefs are just not tolerated for reasons we will get into but i mean if you look at like witch talk or something just rife with conspiracy theories so i think that's why those two communities conspiracies and spirituality kind of go very hand in hand in many ways because especially in decentralized religions they do exist in centralized religions too of course but i think especially in decentralized religions there's not a check involved and there's no dogma so there's nothing that sort of stops that belief, I guess. So let's talk about system two then. Um, So system two is the kind of the idea that you have these thoughts which are more rational and considered and they they take longer to form so that you can form those causative connections between events that you might not form in system one. So, you know, you think about doing things like mental maths, you know, you, you actually have to sort of sit and think about it. It's not usually for most people, it's not kind of immediate. So although in this model, system two does lead to more reliable and rational outcomes, you might issue it because you might have high cognitive load. So you might be doing something and you don't have time to sit and think about it. Um, You might be under high stress. Your mood might affect how quickly you're thinking about things. Or it might just be kind of part of your personality. You might be more prone to making snap judgments. And it's interesting because even when somebody doesn't really believe in a superstition, they might take part in the behavior just in case. Because it's easier from a cognitive load point of view 
to just kind of go along with something and do it rather than kind of engage in the rational thinking. And I think this is kind of interesting because it's again appealing to the idea of working on intuition rather than working on rationality. You're not doing it because you have a belief in a, you know, a magical system or a ritual. You're doing it because you feel like you have to and it's easier to do it than not. I really like this quote from the review that says, in addition to being lazy and inattentive, system two is a bit of a pushover. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought, I don't know if this is a tenuous connection. I was kind of thinking about orthodoxy and orthopraxy and belief versus doing. And I think there are some parallels there maybe, although it's not, it's not an, ex an exact analogy. What do you think? I mean, I think maybe that's where kind of what I was saying comes into play, where like, obviously you do still get conspiracies in centralized religions. But I feel like, especially in religions that are very heterodox, not hetero, sorry, orthodoxical or uh, orthopraxical, because they don't necessarily tolerate certain things that really support conspiracies. Because there are, especially in a lot of modern conspiracy theories, a lot of them are centered around just several core ideas that in many ways are antithetical to those religions. So I think perhaps the reason system two, I mean, it, it makes sense that it gets pushed over too, right? Because a lot of people don't sit down and do like exegesis on something. <laughs> they they uh, just, you know, hear something, make a snap judgment. I mean, we have this thing in the historical like interpreter world that we call ranger lore. I think I've talked about this before. I can't remember. But it basically is like you hear someone say something and it sounds true enough and you don't feel like fact-checking it or you don't know enough about that particular topic. And so then it slowly gets passed down and down. And there's actually one in the place that I work that the like rumor was started in the 1800s. And it wasn't until like last year that one of the educators was like, we have no documentation for that. And then like the people who originally made that educate, like the rumor made like a plaque and everything of it, but they have no source, just like rumors. So it's funny how that kind of like happens in a less dangerous way and a, <laughs> in a more funny kind of way. But so that's one way that that happens. Cause you know, I'm on the job. I'm not just going to like Google some, I mean, sometimes I do, but usually I'm just like, that sounds true. <laughs> probably <laughs> yeah i think the big difference to me that stands out between system one and system two is that system one is based on similarity and emotional connection which is super personal whereas system two is is this cause and effect it's much more external it's i did x and because i did x y is happening right what's interesting about system two is i feel like system two works a lot more with like my style of magic with ceremonial magic where I did said conjuration, I asked for said thing, I ended it, and then said thing occurred X number of days later, whatever. So that's very much so. And it's, it's more rational in the sense of I'm negating what I maybe saw or experienced, and I'm really just looking for evidence that like the change has occurred, right? Versus kind of a, oh, yeah, like I, when I did this ritual, I felt similar to this other ritual that was successful, therefore it will probably be successful, right? Like that kind of difference in thinking. It seems to be more pragmatic, although I think with that, there also comes the possibility of negating magical experience because it doesn't necessarily produce the result that you expect. So there can be some bias in that regard as well. Ultimately, <laughs> I think maybe the best like way to mix these is to find a middle ground where there is a level of personal and emotional connection to something where it's yes like this seems to be similar to this other thing that felt right or felt wrong or whatever 
But despite that, being able to keep an open mind to maybe the cause and effect nature of magical workings as well. Yeah, because everybody engages in in both of these styles of thinking, oh, yeah. right? It's kind of not really one or the other, but it's kind of like Phil was saying. Like, actually, that thing about the thing being passed down and the plaque is shocking. I was just yeah. <laughs> can't believe. It. Um, but yeah, I was just thinking like everybody has kind of limited cognitive resources, so to some extent, you know, you can't sort of rationalize and sit and work through everything. You have to have a sort of a level of automated response to things, and so you will be relying on this kind of similarity-based thinking some of the time because it's you know how we learn um but i guess it's it's the over-reliance on um that sort of snap judgment which is kind of the problem and that can lead to magical thinking and the conversation with like orthodoxy and orthopraxy i think is it's also an important conversation within just the witchcraft community of like this idea of armchair magician versus practicing magician where it's it's fine to have this kind of like this idea that belief like having the correct belief is what's most important which is you can kind of align with armchair magician being like just having the knowledge is the most important right like knowing about what you're like talking about versus the orthopraxy which is the way you practice is equally as important as what you believe whereas with like being a practicing magician it's practicing and having that experience informs the beliefs and vice versa and so you have this kind of like circle of confirmation in a way which can also be biased so you know and that's an interesting consideration too how there's that difference there and just like the kind of magic that people also perform but one of the other things that i wanted to talk about was there's a final thing to mention which is that randomness is inherently challenging to understand even to those of us who have studied statistics <laughs> um, it's not particularly intuitive and so when a lot of people talk about statistical significance or saying like yes this thing happened more than this other thing therefore it is significant it's really common for them to infer their own causation between these events, even if it's like coincidental, can lead to something that a psychologist by the name Ellen Langer has actually termed this idea of illusion of control. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think we see this pretty commonly in the magical community? Yes. I And also, I think even without it, it just makes me think of D&D, right? Or any dice-based game. And especially if you're using online generators that use true random, true random, if you talk to any programmer about true random, they want to like rip their face off. Because a lot of times when people actually have random in video games, random doesn't feel random enough. And so it's so funny to watch people do these little superstitious things to influence the dice, like putting them in jail or blessing them, like literally doing magical acts and yeah, the idea that people can't comprehend random randomness is so frustrating for me when people will be like, this, like the Spotify algorithm isn't really random. I'm like, of course it's not because we can't comprehend randomness. <laughs> yeah, those are just my, my thoughts on that. Yeah, I think the solution of control thing as well, it's, it, it's complicated because obviously some of it is going to contrast with your beliefs. Like some people um, are going to have this illusion of control because they are fearful that their action they don't have control and so they're kind of trying to make these associations because they fear that otherwise uh they're kind of at the mercy of the universe but there there's also kind of has to be room for people's spiritual beliefs and some things that because you can't falsify them um you know if somebody believes that they're saying a prayer and they're getting a response to that i don't necessarily know that that falls into the illusion of control that's more to do with your kind of individual spirituality so it's a, it's a bit of a fuzzy line there but I definitely do think that this exists and it's it's kind of a 
a fear-based thing for me or, an, or a poor understanding of randomness, like you said, that leads to people thinking that they're responsible for more in their lives than they maybe really are. Yeah, even the idea of prayer, though, there is an element of the illusion of control because by praying, there's almost an admittance that you are fearful of not having control over the outcome, right? And so in that case, you are requesting the assistance of a divine being, deity, whatever you're praying to, to interfere on your behalf and change the outcome that you expect, even because typically if that happens, like you're expecting an outcome that maybe is random or like the fact that you can't control the outcome, right? Or maybe you expect a, a negative outcome because it feels like you're being targeted, even though maybe it's just random and humans are naturally inclined to focus on the negative things that happen and not the positive. So in that way too, our view of kind of our lives and the world and what happens is also skewed pretty substantially. So yeah, I think the illusion of control even applies to this idea of prayer because you wouldn't be praying if you had control over your circumstance. Okay, so what are some of the dangers of magical thinking and is it necessary? Is it always necessarily a bad thing? So I think there's a couple of dangers unchecked magical thinking. I think one of the biggest that I see is that people become so disconnected from reality that they begin to see unrelated synchronicities everywhere. And this can lead to paranoia and anxiety, which can result in changes in lifestyle. And that kind of then kind of paranoia can also lead to them seeking external validation, which can make them potential victims to like grifters and the consumeristic nature that we often see in witchcraft. I think that's one of the biggest ones. And it's why as a practitioner, I think it's so important to keep your wits about you, I guess, to say in ritual, like keep yourself grounded in some manner. Um, have some kind of objective thing to measure to because it is really easy in trance state and in ritual to just get so caught up in what's going on think that you're seeing synchronicities all the time I see that a lot even in the witchcraft spaces like today actually in a server there's a whole discussion about um, someone who thought like their boyfriend was cursed by a demon and I was like what's going on um, and it was what they were describing was really just it was a bunch of like things that I think like had common reasons, but it was all attributed to some demonic activity. And I was like, I really don't think like that's what's going on. Um, and it's, it's that kind of thinking that can be so dangerous because then you just see your life through this lens that is not actually true, right? That is, that is wild, man. <laughs> um, yeah, I think from, from kind of personal experience, like being on the side of having OCD, I'm definitely very familiar with the uh, the dangers of magical thinking kind of taking over your life. So that's a really extreme example where you're kind of at the behest of all these these ideas and these connections that are always being built. And it makes it very difficult to um, kind of have faith in your own actions because you, you're you not sure kind of if you're in control, you're not too sure if bad things are going to happen. You know, that is a definite downside. And I think that these, um, if you buy in to magical thinking too much it can self-reinforce and that that's where it can be dangerous but that being said I think magical thinking happens for everybody you know mm -hmm. superstitions can be harmless and normal and it's not you know it's not something that you should necessarily try and completely eliminate it's more being mindful of where it's kind of having too much impact on you in my opinion yeah I just think it's really important to be critical about kind of your own magical thinking and just try to approach yourself from an objective point of view and then you can go from there. I think what's really hard about radical thinking is that we all experience it differently, right? And there are different levels for every person. There's different levels depending on what you're doing. 
um, and even between the different kind of practices that people have, it, it will vary even, even among there as well. So it's hard for kind of different people to say like, yes or no, your magical thinking is taking too far or whatever, because that's really individually. But that's why it's crucial for us as practitioners to always kind of question our own like the our own rituals, kind of what we're doing, the results that we're seeing, and ensuring that we truly are keeping our magical thinking realistic while also making room for the spiritual beliefs that we have. Yeah, I agree with you, Hanny, too, that it's not like a bad thing. Superstition is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be just kind of these fun little quirks that people have, right? And it makes life a little bit more enjoyable. But yeah, having that critical perspective is really crucial. I think we, we talked a lot about bias in our previous bias episodes. If you want a really deep dive on that, like go check that episode out. But are there specific ones that you all can think of or that we should retouch upon? Confirmation bias is a really big one. So the idea that um, you're kind of expecting an outcome and, and therefore you're, um, if, if it comes in, then you're biasing yourself. And that's that's actually kind of fuel for magical thinking. So it is connected, but it's also slight, a little bit different. I found this really good quote that said, one reason people fall prey to confirmation bias is that simply considering a hypothesis automatically makes information consistent with that hypothesis accessible. So if you imagine, you know, you're doing a, a ritual or something and then you have all this new information about um, a particular deity in your head, or if you're kind of expecting a certain outcome, um, you might be more prone to thinking that there is a result because of that confirmation bias. So um, that's why having a sort of a baseline is important. Yeah. So one of the other things is this idea of regression toward the mean. And it's basically this idea that if one sample of a random variable is extreme, then it's making the assumption that the next sampling of the same random variable is likely to be closer to its mean. So with that, then when a lot of random variables are sampled and the most extreme results are intentionally picked out, that it's saying a second sampling of these picked out variables will result in a less, ex- less extreme result closer to the initial mean excluding the extremes, right? So essentially what that means in terms of bias is it's this focus on the extremes and thinking that a second doing it a second time will lead you back to a a normal result I suppose and that can just lead to a kind of shift in bias and expectation which is what the problem is there specifically with that kind of thinking so how can you challenge your own bias and inclination towards magical thinking so kind of if we go into this sort of dual model of thinking which we've talked about a lot and I, I should probably mention, it's not the only model, but it's a popular one in psychology, which is why I brought it up. We can kind of conceptualize the idea of magical thinking as a system one versus system two problem. So if you think that you're prone to magical thinking, um, there are certain factors which can sort of predispose you towards system one thoughts. These are things that you might benefit from challenging in your life. So maybe the first one I can think of is being under high stress. So if you're under very high stress, um, you might be more prone to snap judgments and you might be more prone to kind of reading into things. And obviously it's easier said than done, but reducing your stress levels and sort of carefully considering your ritual practice um, rather than engaging in like emergency magic, if you like, um, that can help you to build a more more healthy relationship with it and um, not sort of be engaging with a spiritual practice as out of a sense of fear or uh, negative thoughts which I think is is the danger there yeah this is why I think emergency magic is so like I don't like emergency magic I'm so against it in so many ways but I think this is a part of the reason because it's very driven by emotional need of the moment and it might actually address the incorrect problem like when we are emotional or really, really like highly, highly stressed, not quite thinking straight, it can oftentimes lead to you focusing on the thing that the emotional connection is to and assigning that the problem. 
and taking actions to eliminate that or possibly change something when in reality the problem is something else entirely and what you're addressing is really just a symptom. But Jason Miller actually sent out a Monday magic email recently where he kind of talked about the same thing. Let's use let's use money for an example, right? You are you need some financial help. Um, you, some extra money in your pocket would be great. So you do a money bowl to gain additional money. And you're doing this spell, you're replenishing it every single week, keep drawing in money and so on and so forth. That is kind of emergency magic. It's not quite to the same level, I think, as what most people will talk about. But it's this idea of instead of maybe being ruled by this emotion of fear that you don't have enough money to either live your life comfortably or have the pleasures that you would like to have, you continuously do this money bowl, these, these many, many small workings versus taking a step back and being like, why am I doing the money bowl? Is it because I don't have enough money to meet my bills? Or is it because um, I may be spending too much elsewhere? Like, what is the objective reason behind this? And then based on that, you can actually do a different working that addresses, like, maybe we need to get a new job. So maybe we, we transition from money bowl to let's look for a better job. Or maybe we transition from money bowl to let's maybe do something where, I don't know, I don't think I would recommend doing this. You could, like, enter into a contest and try to get money, right? Like, taking a more direct route and, like, changing your lifestyle versus kind of this continuous, like, I just need more money all the time kind of idea. All right. High cognitive load, doing a task while thinking of something else. Being distracted by other tasks is also another thing that might lead to magical thinking rather than more rational considered judgments. Staying focused on a ritual task, planning it carefully, and ensuring balance in your mundane life are all aspects that can help you to reflect and get out of your practice. Um, what's interesting about this is I, I actually have heard that there is correlation between like symptoms of OCD and ADHD because of probably this. <laughs> it's very relevant to my personal situation. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, yeah. Um, but it makes sense. And also people with ADHD are also really prone to a higher amount of intrusive thoughts because of that. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, if you're not fully focusing on something, like sometimes I'll be in a ritual and I'm just like, I've got to make sure I'm going to cook this later and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I'm like, no, can't do that. Obviously, that's not always like possible for everyone, but it's to keep in mind that your brain, when your brain is distracted, your brain does funny things. I like to do uh, yoga or meditation or sometimes even I'll, I'll go for a run before um, a ritual practice because I feel like it just calms my mind down and stops me from um, getting into this like weird headspace where I'm likely to make these kind of weird judgments. I think another thing in the witch's space is like there's this idea, right, that when you're in the middle of ritual and you get this like feeling or nudge to add something and so, sometimes it's like a lot people add a lot into a ritual when really it was very simplistic to begin with i think that can be an aspect of this like your brain's working a little bit too hard and sometimes keeping this simple is better in that case and of course and i think this will depend upon the person right i think it's pretty obvious to the individual a well it depends <laughs> sometimes it's not obvious maybe when you really truly are being told like yes add this to the ritual, it will help it versus feeling like you don't have enough correspondences in the moment. So you're going to throw in a couple of additional herbs to something, right? That's why like, I personally like to plan out my rituals. I have like, a whole ritual script and everything. It's very planned out. It's very like, do this and then this and then this and then this. And I like just go down the list essentially. And I typically don't alter the ritual like ever because I just think like, if, if you intentionally plan it to do what you ask, like you need it to do, you've already taken the time to do the research and ensure that it's going to fit what you've asked. 
And so because of that, adding something just increases, makes it more complicated. And especially in a moment where you might be on a ritual high, for instance, that may not actually be helpful. And it might just be better to keep things as they are. Keep like, if you can have a control for whatever you're doing, that's always the best way to kind of take this bias out of play. Um, because you have something you can look back on and be like, this is what it was before. And then I did the thing and the thing changed, right? Like this linear kind of progression. It's not always linear, linear, but that's like a simple example. So if you can have control, that's good. If not, it's okay. Just, I think being aware of the poor understanding of randomness is really important. And like, one of the things that I was taught to do as a magician is like after ritual, you write down your experience and like your thoughts and your feelings and whatever afterwards. And then the next day or even a day or two after you go back and you objectively look at you what you wrote down. And that's a way to kind of double check your own yourself and your bias and your poor understanding of randomness kind of all in one. It's like going back and looking at what you read and then kind of reframing maybe the ritual and what, what actually happened. Okay, so we're moving into conspiracy theories. So what about conspiracy theories? As you know, we've discussed magical thinking is something that a lot of people do to a degree, whether you're practicing medicine or not. And that being said, sometimes this mentality can lead people toward more dangerous thinking patterns, like being inclined toward conspiracy theories. So let's talk about what a conspiracy theory is, where they might intersect with the occult, and then where magical thinking comes into the equation. So what is a conspiracy theory? According to Webster Dictionary, which is our favorite resource, <laughs> um, a conspiracy theory is a belief that some secret but influential organization is responsible for an event or a phenomenon. Now, most conspiracy theories have a few common characteristics that can be found. One, they usually locate or involve the source of an unusual social, political, religious phenomena in unseen, intentional, and typically malevolent forces. Not always, but usually. They can interpret um, events in terms of this like struggle between good and evil. And most conspiracy theories also suggest that the mainstream reporting of the public affairs is a ruse or an attempt to distract the public from the true source of power or the one whose hand is actually doing the manipulation here. So how do you differentiate these theories from other theories about the world? Or do either of you have kind of other definitions of conspiracy theories based on your personal experience or what you've heard? I would say in terms of differentiating them, because some people, you know, you'll say, oh, that's conspiracy theory. And they'll be like, no, it's not. You know, what, what, why, is your, why is your belief not a conspiracy theory? And I think there are some kind of key f factors which make something kind of more conspiratorial. One is that they invariably impose mainstream beliefs, which, again, is kind of common in the occult. So maybe that's not that's not a great uh, a great start. But they often involve blaming like a really small pool of bad actors so it's it's very much like bad versus good as you mentioned um there's no kind of, of um, involvement of nuance there and they're often not evidence-based so they're more kind of about the the, the faith and the thoughts of, thoughts of the believer so maybe relying on system one a bit too much um, and what was this you were saying about manichaean narratives a manichaean narrative is typically it, it often attributes the source of an unexplainable or extraordinary event to unseen intentional forces and it tends toward this melodramatic understanding as, as a struggle between good and evil. Like it's very much moral in nature. And so it's like one side wants you to believe this and the other side wants you to believe this. And that's like where the conspiracy theory comes in where it's like, oh, well, this like the true is evil and the conspiracy theory is the good or, you know, vice versa. It's very, very common to come across the mannequin narratives in religious 
rhetoric. That's oftentimes where you'll find them because that's where you have like the biggest connotation of this idea between good and evil, right? I think a really obvious one is like this narrative of magic is evil because religion is good, right? Even though like that's not, it's not that simple. People have all these, all kinds of conspiracy theories about magic corrupting the church or vice versa and like all of that. So those Manichaean narratives are important to keep in mind. They're often found in religious narratives usually. And since that's kind of where a lot of mysticism falls, that's something you might encounter more frequently than outside of it. Yeah. So what makes them dangerous? I think this is pretty obvious (laughs) based on the current political climate that we're in at the moment, but it's worth discussing anyway. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they're dangerous, not just on societal level, but even on a personal level. I mean, I think unless you've been living under a rock for the past month or so, I think, you know, I don't want to keep harping on it, but a certain high, (laughs) high, uh, high level, very well-known performer has been spouting off conspiracy theories. And the problem with that is that it can weaponize people, especially since a lot of dominant conspiracy theories are very anti-Semitic in nature. So those are understandably extremely dangerous. And uh, as for a personal level, so not only are they dangerous on a societal level, especially when a a very visible figure is touting them. I mean, you see this with vaccines as well. But on a personal level, I mean, like I've seen people's lives get destroyed by believing in conspiracies, Um, like completely destroyed i you know i'm i've talked before about in the new age episode i talked before about how i was a part of the new age community um a lot of those people who were in that community fell into conspiracy theories and are now um some of them are in jail (laughs) it's a it's a huge mess so they can also be very dangerous in that way because they can make you paranoid about your friends and family um, I've seen conspiracy theories tear apart families before. They're, I don't really think there's actually any non-dangerous conspiracy theory generally. I'm open to having my mind change, but from my experience, conspiracy theories, part of what makes them so powerful is that they are wrapped up in these really dangerous ideas. I think the conspiracy theories make people more open to extremes I think is where I have the biggest issue because it takes away this idea of nuance it just like shoots in the foot and it's like nuance doesn't exist it's this or this right and so it can also lead to a lot of potential like dog whistling people who believe in certain conspiracy theories there can be anti-semitic like racist frameworks around that that it can be used as a dog whistle to bring people in even just like normal everyday people who have maybe heard the conspiracy theory and they kind of recognize these dog whistles and be like, oh, what is it a conspiracy? It's like, this is a thing, right? And it, it brings up a lot of doubt. I think conspiracy theories are also dangerous because they add a lot of paranoia into society where it's like people are intentionally misleading others. We saw this heavily when it came to the vaccine conspiracies where people were, um, because of all the misinformation and the conspiracies of the vaccine, it just led to uh, people distrusting the individuals who are considered the experts and are really attempting to create something that will save lives like ultimately that as someone who was part of some vaccine research and who heavily had to address these conspiracy theories with family members like it was so frustrating to have people kind of throw your expertise back in your face in the wake of a conspiracy theory and it's like well 
let's address like let's address like the factual evidence like here are papers that show x y and z your conspiracy theory is based primarily off of belief and not off of the fact and that's it's really problematic and it led to a lot of deaths i think with covid that could have been probably prevented and there's obviously ongoing ones too right but like climate change isn't real and all of these and it's just like okay and again it, it becomes black and white when i think realistically when it comes to conspiracy like I'm not saying that there are, that the, you know, governmental organizations or large-scale organizations don't have to hide things. I think they do because corruptness is a part of society, but like it's never to the extreme that I think a lot of people think it is. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle. So why do you think that these are common in the occult world then? And what kind of conspiracy theories do you tend to see espoused in these communities? Kind of what we were talking about with magical thinking. I think occult practitioners or people who identify as more spiritual tend to be more open to ideas and sometimes when you're open to ideas like especially open to things that you know you can't prove or you can't disprove you can kind of fall into that that trap especially because of that you know that illusion of control someone had written this in the outline of isolation from non-believers and I think you know there's a huge community with conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists. So I think that's another reason, too, of not feeling as isolated. I think when it comes to the occult community, it depends on what part of the occult community you're in. Like Atlantis is a big one. I mean, obviously, Atlantis is not really one in the Hellenic polytheist community because Hellenic polytheists tend to understand Plato's writings a little bit more. That's not to say they don't exist. There's also, I mean, basically every dumb shit that theosophy ever touted theosophy was the birthplace of so many conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. anyway one's about like medication affecting your magic all of that by the way (laughs) yeah all of that kind of rhetoric a lot of anti-semitic conspiracy theories are unfortunately seen a lot in the occult i mean People sometimes, like younger practitioners in the occult sphere, don't realize how much occultism was tied to the Nazis. Mm -hmm. So understandably, there is that there. So I think those tend to be a lot of the dominant conspiracy theories. I mean, with the New Age, it's like every conspiracy theory, basically. We even see them in the ceremonial circles too. Like within the ceremonial kind of area of the occult community, like this idea that the secret societies like the Rosicrucians and like the OTO and the Golden Dawn and like the Illuminati and the Masons, like there's so many conspiracy theories about how like those societies have just like greatly altered the trajectory of the world. And it's so funny because you like, you read some of the text of these societies. Like I've read um, regard not regardies, but like the big black book that has all the golden dawn rituals and stuff in it. And these people are not over here concerned with like with altering the trajectory of the world. Okay, we got more important things to be doing. So like it's just it's it's crazy. Those kind of conspiracies run rampant in the um, ceremonial side. But even I also think that when it comes to the wider occult community. Some this might be a hot take. <laughs> There's kind of this desire to be the devil's advocate in many ways. So I think demonolatry is a good example of this. Like, fuck the Christian religion. We're going to worship these demons instead of consider them in like a negative. <laughs> yeah, instead of consider uh, these demons like a negative light, like the church would tell you to. And that's kind of like something that 
can like at least this conspiracy I, it's just so I think a lot of conspiracy theories sometimes in the occult community come about because we're just trying to be antagonistic towards religion and it's they see it like oh well the church did one thing and like they were intentionally doing that and it's it's just that's something that I also see a lot oh you mean like how um the catholic church invented latin yeah and uh all of rome uh-huh right mm-hmm. yep yeah, yeah I like the Vatican is just it's it's like a secret society in and of itself and yeah mm-hmm. for what it's worth <laughs> I don't tend to see the like oh, I forget what they what people call them I don't tend to see that group of people within the occult community because obviously a lot of people like worship deities that are like Roman based or you Latin based phrases if anything, you might see that in the New Age. Yeah, it's weird. I think there's there's sometimes also the occult community can be the victim of conspiracy theories because they're so isolated. So there's this idea of this kind of great evil that's underlying everything. And that, that kind of leads to this sort of satanic panic idea where, oh, because people are, you know, worshipping deities who are not a particular, a particular one responsible for a lot of evil. Um, and I th- the same thing with this kind of black and white thinking Sometimes you see these doomsday ideas appear in new agey circles where it's, again, it's positing good versus evil, this group versus that group. It's it's placing all the blame on a small group of um, perceived bad actors. So I think that there are kind of lots of connections between the two communities, which are quite unfortunate. I think, too, it's kind of easy in the occult community because, like, especially if you're on the side that maybe deals with a lot of, like, entheogens and has kind of these psychic, like, experiences with trances and stuff, if you have something that's like so against the kind of typical reality, it can lead to potential conspiracy theories of being like, oh, well, the you know true world or whatever is being hidden from us. And it was, it was, I saw it with this experience. And so it's this idea that like something is being oppressed in um, kind of the real world to hide this like alternative reality. That's another one that I hear pretty commonly, um, which I think is a little meh. <laughs> but then it's like these people don't, believe in systemic racism i don't understand i don't understand it's like (laughs) they don't believe in conspiracy conspiracies that are true you know Mm -hmm. like they're like eh, whatever the nsa that's fine (laughs) sorry you mentioned entheogens and i was like oh my god (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think there's a big intersection between people who um who take psychedelics and maybe are more prone to thinking about these of conspiratorial events and i say that as somebody who has experienced in theogens um well i think i th- like speci- i'm specifically thinking of like ea co-editing right with all of like this talk and how he is like hella conspiracy theorist over here and he's a big proponent of like psychedelics and theogens and he kind of ties the two together which is awful <laughs> you know i think there's a reason for that and i think it's because I'm just postulating from kind of own experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time on entheogens, so things like psychedelic mushrooms, for example, it's a really common one. They will make you feel like you're sort of, that everything's connected. Every, every, you're kind of one with the world. Everything's connected. And so you start drawing these weird connections together between X and Y, where there's no causative relationship. Again, magical thinking. And so it's kind of impossible to see things as sort of random or nuanced. You start to build these like, connections between two things which are not necessarily related and so when maybe you do a little bit too much of that I think that's when you can start falling into sort of dangerous zones. So what are some ways we can do to challenge to avoid the dangers of this these different like modes of thinking that can lead to conspiratorial theories? One of the things that I think Hanny you wrote this but I'm going to comment on it because I think it's a really good one is reading a diverse array of sources. I think this is really important when it comes to conspiracy theories that are like anti-semitic and racist in nature because 
reading sources from the people in those communities can really like dash a lot of those conspiracy theories and just kind of drag them through the dirt, which is really important. So certainly not reading only sources within your kind of what you would typically expect. This is actually why I have issues. <laughs> okay, this is the side. But I have issues with some of the um, online blogs and stuff that are like, oh, well, if you're, in the, if, if you're in the Golden Dawn, like read all of these books. And it's like, okay, yes, but I would also recommend you read all of these books, which are like not related to this and offer a different perspective because it kind of reminds you that it's not just the one tradition. There are all these others. And besides, Golden Dawn is influenced by so many goddamn. That diversification of sources is really important, both magically and mundanely, to kind of keep yourself out of that kind of thinking. I think um, also challenging anything that is sort of black and white, that anything that appears to demonize one particular group, that is a huge red flag um, and something that you should look out for. And uh, yeah, again, so surrounding yourself with a sort of broad variety of people as well can help because then you're more likely to be challenged rather than kind of end up ending up in echo chambers where unfortunately things can get sort of reinforced in a negative way. Echo chambers is huge. I was part of a couple of witchcraft servers that were very echo chambery and it was amazing the impact that it had. As an end to the episode, let's talk about our favorite conspiracy theories, our silly ones. Who wants to go first? Oh, okay, well, you're thinking I have one. <laughs> so water fluoridation is... Basically, the controlled addition of fluoride to public water to reduce tooth decay. That's the conspiracy theories. And although, like, there are some dental health organizations that support this fluoridation, it's, like, vehemently opposed by conspiracy theorists. And there are some allegations by them that claim that it's actually used to dispose of industrial waste. Or, this is what I think is the funny one, that it exists to obscure a failure to provide dental care to the poor. And then, actually, in... The 1960s, the John Birch Society essentially attributed this to like this water fluoridation as a communist plot to weaken the American population. I it's wild. What's so funny to me about the water fluoridation thing when it comes to like hiding the fact that the poor don't have access to dental is that the amount of fluorine that would be in the water is so inconsequential to like it would have no effect whatsoever when it comes to people's like dental hygiene. I just think it's so funny. It's like one of the most ridiculous conspiracy theorists like I've ever heard in my life. I would say one that's pretty good is birds as uh, birds are like cameras. Mm-hmm. Birds are the government. Birds don't exist. Birds are the government watching you. Um, listen, pigeons. I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> But the, the funny thing about that is, right, there's, there is actually some evidence that the CIA researched this. And bear in mind, the CIA also researched like remote viewing in the most unhinged way, which we did cover in an episode. Like, it's wild. They, they have done all these un, insane, unhinged things. So I see where people get the idea from. It's just the sort of the way it gets ex- <laughs> expanded is completely ridiculous. I agree. Pigeons are everywhere and they're weird and they're really creepy. I, there was a, did I tell you guys this? There was a tagged pigeon that appeared on, like, when I first moved into this apartment. For the first 10 days I lived here, every morning, this pigeon would land on my balcony, and it was tagged for some research thing, I'm guessing. And I swear, it would just stare at me for, like, 10 minutes. I was like, what the fuck is going on? It was the CIA. <laughs> it was we- It was weird. I was like, is this signer? Is this, like, some was something shifty happening here before I moved in? Like, I don't know. Uh, my favorite conspiracy theory is that the moon isn't real. Just because, <laughs> just because, like, I don't, I don't even know where to begin with that one. I mean, you've, you've got to, you've got to be taking some serious stuff. To that. But the implications of that as well, like, 
what is up there what's it replaced by how does this affect uh, ceremonial magic so many questions the whole planetary system is not real it's projections only saturn is real (laughs) i will say as someone like sometimes you know when i go to like actions or stuff we tend to go to like heavily populated areas and let me tell you when you're doing like an action of some kind especially if you're not marching but you're staying in a single location people single you out and they're like i am gonna tell you all of my conspiracy theories the amount of times that i've been there just like doing my thing and people just come up to me and tell me the most insane things I've ever heard. <laughs> and I'm just like tr- literally struggling to understand what they're saying. Speaking of weird things. So at my job in this house from like the 18th century, it was also like a house in the 19th century as well um, when a bunch of people were living in the area. And when we were like looking around, we found a theosophy book. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what no. are these people oh, doing gosh. in here? <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's wild. How fun. Yeah, one of the biggest ones I come across in my job is this idea like artificial diseases. People think that we're like training robots to like bite people as mosquitoes and trans like essentially transport disease that way. And I'm just like, right, okay. (laughs) So because I'm also, I take public transit every day. So I take the weird train specific or like I don't have a choice. I take the weird train. People are always off the shits. I call it the twilight zone. People will just start saying stuff. Sometimes it's funny. But after the the queen died, this dude was just going off about how America was still a part of England. And I was like, what is going on? And he was like, the Americans killed the queen because she was. And I was like, what is happening? (laughs) Sir, what are you talking about? She was 95 or thereabouts. Come oh my on. God. She was the so conspiracy old. theorists when the queen died and they were like, what did she die of? And I was like, old age. Yeah. What do you think she died of? They were like, it's because she got the COVID vaccine. I was like, or because she's 95. If anything, if she did get COVID, it was from Liz Truss. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. Let's end the episode. All right. Yeah. Thank you for listening this far and to all of our unhinged conspiracy takes here at the at the end. If you don't already, you can follow us on Instagram. We also, which is going to be picking up as we start releasing episodes again. Yay, we're finally back on track. Go us. We also have a Discord that is randomly active, but when it is, we have really good discussions. Um, so you can join us there as well. Everything will be linked in the description. We'll also include a couple of our resources for this episode if you would care to read those papers. Um, and yeah. We will see you next week. Bye, everyone.